like to welcome everyone to the 79th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of fiction and writing in the COVID-19 pandemic with Malka Older and Malka's brother, Daniel Jose Older. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. As of today, you can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. I'd like to welcome new viewers and listeners to the broadcast. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else that you get podcasts. And if you're wondering what COVID Calls is all about, please be sure to check out our introductory episode on Podbean. It's there as a podcast. It's also linked on the Facebook page for COVID Calls and explains really the ambition of the series. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests, topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 9th, 2020, there are 12,128,406 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 10,538,577 cases reported July 1st when we did our last COVID calls broadcast. Of those, 3,088,913 are in the United States, and that's up from 2,658,324 reported July 1st. There are now a total of 132,934 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 127,681 deaths reported on July 1st. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, a woman, her brother, and their mother all lost to COVID-19. <clears throat> the virus's devastating toll on one D.C. area family. This is by Paul Dugan. It was published May 2nd in the Washington Post. Having already tended to one burial and with two more to arrange, Shanta Leek Cherry was on the phone in April describing how the novel coronavirus came up like a foul wind and swept through her family. Her voice faltered and she said wearily, you'll have to excuse me if I get a little emotional. Two months ago, her sister Nikki Leek and Nikki's fiance who lived together in Charles County, Maryland, were looking forward to their destination wedding in Hawaii. And now Nikki is dead. In March, before Nikki got sick, their 74-year-old mother, Leslie Leek, a retired postal clerk, was passing her golden days in contentment. She could be found assembling floral bouquets, singing softly to herself, and doting on her grandchildren and great-grandchildren when they visited Mama's immaculate old house in the district's Congress Heights neighborhood. Now Leslie is dead. Her son, John Leek Jr., 40, brother of Nikki and Shanta, moved into his parents' Congress Heights home about a year ago. And what a cut-up he was, always with jokes. The type of person, regardless of whether you're having a bad day, you can depend on him to make you laugh, Shanta said. He was our clown. I mean, you just couldn't help but be happy around him. Now, John Jr. is dead. Their 78-year-old father, John Leake Sr., a retired plumber and widower of Leslie, tested positive for the virus and was quarantined in the Congress Heights house after some frightful nights. He is feeling better, but Shanta worries. In the 600 block of Alabama Avenue Southeast, the tidy two-story wood house that John and Leslie Leak shared for decades is painted pale green with an elegant semi-turret on the front facade and a square of neatly trimmed grass. Relatives call it simply the house, a nickname for the place where they invariably gathered on holidays and special occasions. Birthdays, baptisms, graduations, and the big cookout every 4th of July when the Leaks got together it was almost always at the house. Last spring, Nikki's daughter, Anaya, finished high school, and of course, Mama and Papa hosted a celebration, laying down a red carpet from the brick steps of the porch to the sidewalk. Folks loved it. Amid growing concern nationwide that the coronavirus is disproportionately hurting African Americans, 
the district's Ward 8, including Congress Heights and other neighborhoods east of the Anacostia River, is a case in point. Historically riven with social ills, drugs and crime, inadequate health care, and high unemployment, to name a few, the ward, nearly 90% black, has Washington's worst rate of contagion fatalities, six per every 100,000, excuse me, six per every 10,000 residents. By the end of April, 677 confirmed infections had been recorded in the ward, up from 259 a few weeks earlier, health officials said. On March 30th, Nikki's condition grew so grave so rapidly that the Suburban Medical Center transferred her to the larger MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. We never got a chance to talk to her again, Shanta said. She was on a ventilator for about two weeks, and the virus kept attacking and attacking her. Leslie had asthma, as did John Jr., who also was having trouble breathing around the time of Nikki's death. They blamed it on pollen, on the allergies that aggravated their compromised respiratory functions every spring. Shanta wasn't sure. Often we self-diagnose, she said by phone. We shouldn't. On April 19th, they were wheezing, and ambulances were summoned to the house. One took Leslie to George Washington University Hospital, and the other carried John Jr. to Howard University Hospital. The mother and son both tested positive. Their illnesses followed different progressions in the days afterward, but ended the same way, each with a flat line on a bedside monitor. John Jr. worked in communications at the U.S. Postal Service headquarters and had part-time gigs at a grocery store at a hotel. He was a former culinary student, a foodie, and head chef for all events at the house on Alabama Avenue. His entire time in the hospital, almost, he was alert and talking and no doubt cracking jokes, Shanta said. Leslie was another story. The day after her mother was admitted, Shanta got a call from the hospital saying Leslie needed to be heavily sedated and intubated. From then on, she was never more than semi-conscious as doctors tried hydroxychloroquine and later the experimental drug remdesivir. The treatments were halted after she developed an irregular heart rate, Shanta said. The house... That favorite place of the extended leaks will probably go on the market after the crisis, Shanta said. She doesn't want her father in there without her mother because bad things, once unimaginable, can happen, she now knows. She said she plans to downsize John Sr. in the interest of safety and her own peace of mind. He'll come live with us, she said. I want to keep him close. I'd like to turn to our discussion today. I'm really thrilled to introduce my guests, and let me start with Daniel. Daniel Jose Older is the New York Times bestselling author of a middle-grade historical fantasy series, Dactyl Hill Squad, the Bone Street Rumba urban fantasy series, Star Wars Last Shot, the Book of Lost Saints, and the award-winning young adult series, The Shadow Shaper Cipher which won the International Latino Book Award and was shortlisted for the Kirkus Prize in Young Readers Literature, the Andre Norton Award, the Locus, the Mythopoeic Award, and named one of Esquire's 80 books every person should read. He is a lead story architect on the Star Wars, the High Republican Cross-Platform Initiative, and you can find out more and read more of his writings, including his writings about being a paramedic on danieljoseolder.net. Thanks for having me. Michael Older, now a, a repeat. Uh, great. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. Malka is a repeat uh, guest to COVID Calls. This is her second visit. She was on a previous episode uh, with the anthropologist Vivian Choi, and you can find that in our archives of podcasts. Great discussion. Malka is a writer, aid worker, and academic, named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs for 2015. She has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. Her research interests include intergovernmental relations in crises, the paradox of well-funded disaster response, measurement and evaluation of disaster response, and the effects of competition among actors in humanitarian aid. She's also a writer and Malka Older's science fiction political thriller Infomocracy was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus. Book Riot in the Washington Post. She's also the author of the sequels Null States and State Tectonics. Her short story and poetry collection and other disasters came out in late 2019. Daniel and Malka, thank you so much for making time. Welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having us. And thank you for doing this, Scott. Yeah. 
I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, and I want to remind everyone you can get your questions in. You can um, put them up if you're watching on YouTube Live. Just put them in the YouTube Live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. Sometimes people like to email them to me in the middle of the discussion. That's fine, too. You can email me, sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I'd like to start the way I've been starting all of these calls and just find out where you're calling in from what the COVID-19 situation is there. And in, in discussions in these last few weeks, we've also been talking about the reverberations of the George Floyd murder in terms of protests that may be going on where you are. So with that in mind, Malka, if I could start with you, um, how are things, where are you and how are things there? Uh, I'm in The Hague in the Netherlands. And things here feel very much back to normal. Um, in a terrifying way, but people are are inside cafes and restaurants and out on the street shopping. Um, the The numbers are pretty low here. It's I think there were 52 confirmed cases in the country at the last count, um, and they're measuring the numbers who go into ICU and into hospitalization every day. It's you know one in two or zero in there nationwide for, for a week or two. Um, there are still, you know, some concerns. Okay, I think we lost Scott. I'm just gonna keep talking until he comes back. Um, sweet, there you are. Um, you know, the, the holiday season is starting up and Europe's internal borders have mostly opened except for Sweden and the UK, if we count that as Europe, I don't know. Uh, and. So there's, there's more travel going on and, and there's some concerns about what's going to happen. But right now it's pretty low. Um, there were some protests here uh, during the early sort of rush of protests. I think they've mostly quieted down. And there, there was some talk about looking at the racism in the Netherlands as well. Um, it's... I think that, you know, it, it, it came up here very much as a conversation, but it, it certainly hasn't lasted as long. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of work to do here too, but um, at least it did, it did come up and there was some, there were some important discussions that started about that. And there, the protests were, um, were really impressive actually. Thanks for situating us into what's going on where you are. Malka, same question to you, Daniel. Where are you calling from and, and what's going on there? Yeah, I'm uh, currently in New Orleans, Louisiana, and our numbers are starting to go back up like everywhere else. We had an initial spike that was very dramatic, and then the decline was also very dramatic. But as we went down, the larger state uh, numbers started going up, and now they're going up pretty fast. They're more towards 2,000 new cases a day, more or less. Um, we're, we're, we've stayed below 100 new cases a day, but it's definitely gone from like the single digits back up closer to 100 in the past couple, like week or so. So um, the, the death count is, is um, still in the single digits for, uh, statewide from what I've seen. Um, but yeah, things are kind of uh, ominous. And, and in terms of protests, um, we, we, had, we had a good amount of um, um, Pretty solid protest from what I heard, um, and they stayed. The cops stayed in line more so than in a lot of places. I think uh, American Trail has been pretty on point both about the COVID response and um, making sure that things don't get out of hand in the protests. Um, and then there's been kind of a steady stream of, of smaller ones going on ever since then. Uh, you see them, you know, on corners on a good number of nights a week. I think they've been trying to sustain just having people come out, you know, even if it's a small crowd just regularly, so it's ongoing. Okay, so we've got, in, the, in this call, we've got the East Coast, we've got the Gulf Coast, and we've got Europe represented in one call, so we've got some pretty interesting variability geographically here. Yeah. I, today we're gonna to talk about fiction, and we're gonna talk about making sense of, of disaster through fiction and, and writing, but to get there, I wanted to, uh, also I wanna ask you both a little bit about your own background, maybe to understand a little bit of kind of what goes on, how you, how you make your, uh, how your idea, where they're coming from, what you're drawing from, I guess. And Malka, I'm going to start with you. Find a little bit more about your background in humanitarian aid and in disaster management and disaster research. 
Why did you go into those fields? What kind of questions and concerns motivated you, still mo- motivate you in those areas? Um, yeah, I, um, I really went into, into humanitarian work. I started working for NGOs because I wanted to learn more about the rest of the world and really, you know, see how people lived in other places and how people thought in other places. And it was, you know, it was kind of a way for me to be learning about, uh, what was going on and meeting people and spending time in other places and, you know, hoping that I could do some good as kind of a bonus. Um, honestly, which, you know, I think it's so hard to, to, to do good that if you depend, if you hang your entire reason for doing things on that, it can be, it can be really hard. Um, and I, I wanted to learn about things. So I, I started doing work actually on the development side. And while I was working for a local NGO in Sri Lanka, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami hit the island. And so I was really um, thrown into the disaster response because you you couldn't you couldn't be there at the time. I couldn't be there at the time and not um, be involved in what was going on. It was a really massive event, uh, and it was um, just uh, very shocking and, and traumatic for for everyone. I think, um, and uh, and I found the disaster response work really fulfilling and interesting um, and, you know, met some people who were working in it and ended up picking up some more jobs. And um, after that, I went to Uganda briefly and then I was in Darfur for a little over a year, um, which is a long-term emergency, a long-term complex emergency. Um, I didn't want to get too burned out. So I went to do some more development work in Indonesia, also being aware that there would be disasters while I was there because Indonesia is one of those places you can pretty much count on some kind of disaster. Um, and there were, so I did some earthquake responses there. Um, and then as I was there, I started doing more disaster risk reduction work. So that's more on the preventative and preparedness side. Um, and uh, did that for a little bit. Ended up getting called up for the disaster response in Japan after the tsunami because I spoke some Japanese from teaching English there a long time before. And, um, and that gave me some ideas for what I would wanted to study uh, for a PhD looking really at, I mean, it was, it was so different to um, be working in a country that didn't have very much of an international response and to look at what that domestic response looked like in Japan um, where the government was mostly handling it. I was working for a Japanese NGO seconded and, um, and it was really fascinating to see the differences. Uh, And so I, I, began looking for my, my doctoral research on how, um, mostly local and meso governments improvise their organizational structures after they have a collapse in the wake of a disaster. And I looked at that Japan tsunami and I looked at Hurricane Katrina. Um, And (laughs) that was maybe a long answer, but it's kind of a complicated (laughs) winding path. So that that can give you some sense of the different things that I've done and how I ended up where I am. So if I had that right, then how many continents (laughs) have you done a um, response and disaster research on? Yeah, most of them. I mean, I, I did. Most, yeah. Well, there were, because I was also, I was for a while, I was a, a, in a global position in which I traveled like constantly. Um, and I also did a fair amount of consulting. So like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it was a lot of different places. I've looked at disaster preparedness programs in the Solomon Islands and I've written proposals for DRR in South America and Central America and yeah, just kind of mostly all over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a real it's a pleasure to speak to so many emergency managers and people who study emergency management disaster during COVID calls and to find out how many of them were actually sort of in the field before they uh, turned to doing maybe more theoretical work, uh, more academic work. And one of the things that's emerged in those discussions, and I wonder what you think about it, is that really what we need are people who, who can do both or who can some, it's hard to do everything, um, but who don't lose that sense of act, activism or the desire to do intervention and field work, but also um, have the kind of perspective that you have as a, as a researcher. I worry about fatigue with people, you know, doing that kind of thing, but um, disaster research it's, it has theory, but 
Um, there's an activist and an active core at the center of it too. Do you still consider yourself in, in both of those tents? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a question of, you know, what's the statute of limitations of the last time I was in an active disaster area, unless you include, you know, the entire world right now. But, um, I, you know, I think that having had that experience is, is, is really important because there is a shift, um, in reality and in the way people relate to it when there's a major disaster. And it's very hard to understand that even the first time you're in it, let alone before you've ever been in it. And so, you know, I think one of the, actually one of the issues I find really, really fascinating that I'd like to see more work on um, in disaster studies is kind of, you know, this disconnect between the people who have done it before and are often kind of jaded and, and, you know, it can be a disadvantage in some ways as well. And the people who have never done it before and are either trying to work in a normal way and, and end up getting getting stuck and often having having difficulties um, and the people who or, or just like taking to it immediately um, or maybe just being really overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I feel like there's there's a cultural conflict there um, that I've seen happen in so many different places and, you know, within people of the same nationality and sometimes even subnational identity uh, in terms of just, you know, how familiar they are and how they react to, to that change of pace and that change of reality that happens in a disaster. So thank you for that, Daniel. I want to turn to you, get a little bit of kind of the, backstory before the writing and I know that you I saw on your website you, you've written a little bit there about your, your previous work as a paramedic maybe mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about yourself and tell totally. us about that paramedic time period too I think that's really relevant to where we are today absolutely um, and, I, and I got into that knowing that um, I was going to end up doing creative work wait <laughs> until I started talking to Stella stop Older 2020, why are you like this? Sorry. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I knew I was going to do creative work. I wasn't sure what direction yet. And I knew it was also a very practical decision. I knew I needed a job that would pay my rent after college. Um, and it was something I was always really interested in, but didn't really know exactly what direction it would go. Um, I also knew that as an artist, there was going to be a temptation, or there was a temptation always, uh, to sort of feel like you're on the outside of something, looking in and describing it. And that there's such a danger in that idea because you never are really outside of anything and I felt like I wanted a job that was very much like wouldn't let me be under that impression like wouldn't let me kind of labor under that mythology of, of ever being outside something um, a job that would very much put me like in the streets I got into it with that kind of philosophy in the back of my mind and what I didn't really know was how much uh, healing happens of the self as we're healing other people um, they're, you know, they're, like when you tell people you're a medic, they're always, it's always like, oh, wow, like, you know, how do you sleep at night? Which, Malcolm, I'm sure you get that, too. Like, wow, you must yeah. have seen, right? And yeah. you're like, I don't know. I was always like, I, I sleep great. You know what I mean? Like, I save people's lives for a living. I sleep mm -hmm. amazingly. <laughs> um, that's not to discount that, like, we do indeed see really terrible things. But I think it's the word see that really is tricky. Mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. What we don't do, actually, is just see things. Like, as a medic and as a as a person involved in any kind of disaster relief, you're very actively involved. And, and mm -hmm. that's what I didn't know going in was just how deeply the active part is a, a mechanism of self-healing and, and cleansing, really. you know? And it, it's like, so you, you, you are taking part in someone's healing process. And by doing that, you are also recovering from your own trauma of dealing with it face to face. It's very different than walking out into the street and seeing someone get hit by a truck and mm -hmm. not having your gear with you and not being able to do anything. Um, and that's something I just think we really misunderstand when we look at it from the outside. You know, when we see like what what response workers, you know, the gallows humor and the sort of idea that like we just have to close off our hearts, and it's really the opposite. Really what it is, is we all have to find our balance. And I think this is true of humanity in general right now, especially, and it's always been true of people who live in marginalized communities, is we all have to find our balance about how to survive in a world uh, full of trauma, a world that doesn't love us back very often, and a world that is you know, constantly in crisis. And, and how do we live you know, in that space 
of knowing that to be true, knowing that, you know, you could be midway through eating a slice of pizza and then have to deal with a child who's been shot and, and not let it break you or harden you to the point that you can't do your job or go through your daily life. And that's the sort of balancing act that they don't teach you about in medic school. And they, uh, because of toxic masculinity and other things, you know, it's hard to have those conversations unless you have a great partner, you know, on the ambulance. And, and that was really just sort of the complicated journey of being a medic. Um, I did it for 10 years and I loved it every single year. And I'm so glad that I left before I got burnt out and, you know, did what I had to do. Um, but I also went in knowing that I wasn't going to do it forever and that the path was always out and into a creative field. I just wasn't sure what. I, I think it's interesting the way you, you describe that. Yeah. Go ahead, Malcolm. No, no, please. You have sibling privilege. You should definitely <laughs> go ahead. No, I just I, I think that's so true about being active in it. And and gosh, you know, I think that's something that, that really <laughs> should be should be something that, that people can experience. And it doesn't have to be necessarily like in emergency things, but right. but being active, engaging with people and helping with people. I mean, and in a lot of ways, you know, these are the kinds of professions that are now they're you know, they're not as prestigious. They don't get paid that well. And yet they're so fundamental for everyone involved. Um, But yeah, for me, I mean, going back to the question that you asked me and tying this in, it was actually, I had much more trouble um, emotionally dealing with it when I was studying disaster as a researcher than when I was working on it and in it every day, because Even though, like, disaster response, the, the whole humanitarian industry, like, it's very messy. And I meant it when I said it before. You cannot count on doing good. <laughs> you try. You try really hard, but it's, it's, it's really messy. And there are really ugly moments in it. But even there, at least you know you're there trying and you're, you, you know, you're engaging with people. And, you know, to go out and talk to people about their trauma and the best I could offer them would be that, like, probably my advisor would read the whole dissertation. Um it just felt like I was contributing so, so little um, compared to what I was getting, what people were sharing with me. And I found that much, much more difficult to deal with emotionally than, um, than being very much in the thick of it. Right. Yeah. And that's, that was, that was a really revelatory moment for me on the ambulance was having, you know, we would have brains on the sidewalk and just all kinds of gruesome stuff and, and we would walk away. Okay. It was the case where, it was a child who was sexually abused, you know, who all we did was take the girl to the hospital. And she was emotionally and physically presented okay, you know, when we when we got to her. And she gave us high fives, you know what I mean? And we dropped her off and we gave her our report and we filled out all the paperwork and we did all the bureaucratic things that you have to do and everything else. And that's what crushed me. And it's because all that paperwork could amount to literally nothing. She could go right yeah. back into that situation. That's beyond my everything to do. You know, I just had to drop her off and say goodbye. And and you know, the the there was it's not even like you could do something and fail at it. There was just nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, that paperwork ain't it. And so I just remember leaving that day from work and just kind of like being. I just felt like I'd been hit by a truck. You know what I mean? And and it, it was such a, a disconnect because, like I said, I'd seen so many horrible things but I had been able to try to treat them. Even if the patient didn't make it, I had played my role in doing whatever I could to bring that person back to life. And I knew going in, they probably weren't gonna make it, you know? And, but this is like a whole other thing, like way beyond. And that was that, it's that helplessness, you know? And I do mm-hmm. think, I, I felt it back then, I feel it even more now, but just mm-hmm. the way that we can be traumatized by watching the news, you know? Yep. By dealing with, you know, who's in office, everything. Like it is, it is a form of trauma. And then particularly the more we feel helpless about it, you know, and, and I think that that's what led me to activism. That's what led me to writing. I think activism and writing are actually the same thing in many ways. I think we can have very concrete ideas of what activism is and isn't and that, that's to our detriment. But to me, like taking an action, whatever it may be, whether it's like sometimes it's literally a tweet, you know, and sometimes it's getting your friends together at this point online only, whatever, you know, like whatever it is, like it's something that doesn't make you feel totally um, victimized and passive by the nightly news, by the con- ongoing crisis on the news, like that's all connected. You know, the work as being a medic or being a disaster coordinator, and that is, is very much a, the same story. You're both telling me something that I find surprising in, in, 
and I guess I hadn't quite put this together thinking about artists also who've been in war. But my assumption is that to go through the kind of trauma, to be in the disaster zone, Malka or Daniel, to be in the in the ambulance, mm-hmm. that you build a carapace, that you have to create some invulnerability in order to do the work. But somehow that seems to me at odds with the vulnerability required to be an artist. And, and to be a, a writer who, you know, you open yourself and you make yourself vulnerable to readers who right. can say, hey, I like that or I don't like that. And I don't know, maybe I, I, I've gone into this with the wrong preconception about, about the relationship between trauma and writing. But I, I've always thought that maybe people who see those kind of things, they kept it to themselves or that that wasn't the good precondition. Mm-hmm. For being in that wavelength that a that a writer is, you're telling me something different. Yeah, I think it's the opposite of a. Of a I think if you you know if you find your way toward balance, it becomes the opposite of any kind of, of shielding, and it, it really becomes that you because you you can't do the job if you're overly protective of yourself either. You know if you're or you can't do the job if you're thinking about the last patient. And you can't do the job if you don't care about patients at all. Interesting. And yeah, if you get super jaded, it's. I mean. Like I said before, if you have no idea what's going on and you're overwhelmed and freaked out, that's a problem. But if you've done it a million times and nothing surprises yeah. you anymore and you can't show that you care or that you're surprised by anything, right. that's no good. Right. And But I think there's something else to it, too, which is, you know, for me, I, being a writer, and this is a kind of a vulnerability, but maybe a different way of talking about it, but it's you have to be present, right? You have to be observing what's going on. You have to be really seeing and experiencing um, things because otherwise, how are you going to describe them or draw anything from yeah. them in terms of insight? Mm-hmm. And so, doing things that are active, that are engaged, that take you out of your comfort zone, yeah. to me, is really fundamental yes. um, for for being a writer. Um, and that, you know, that again, that does not have to be going into a disaster zone. There's lots of ways that you can be active and engaged. Um, you know, with your family, uh, if, yeah. and with, I don't know, a hobby, like as long as it is something that takes you outside of a routine and makes you look around, um, I think that's, you know, that's the opening that you need. And I also think, you know, for me, the vulnerability of being a writer is n- not so much what readers are going to think. I mean, yeah, you know, I want people to like it and I want people to say good things about it, but I don't know. I have much more confidence to face that part of things because I had this whole other career that was, right. you know, in some ways a lot more right. um, challenging in terms of, of, of getting things right. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it, I won't say it doesn't affect me at all, but I have so much more confidence um, than I would have, I think, if I had done what I wanted to do right out of college and become an instant right. writer success. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm really um, I feel like that's that's a real yeah. strength. It's that, and and it's all of that, absolutely. And it's also that both jobs, and I think any job in emergencies, requires you to analyze the situation deeply in order to figure out what action to take. And and yes, there's time, you know, with the jaded piece, that the, the result of being jaded is you walk into a room and see a patient with chest pain and decide automatically what it is without looking deeper, you know, or you, you know, or you, whatever situation you're going into, you don't do a proper power analysis of what's going on around you and what are the different ways that you have to get yourself out of it or get the patient out of it or whatever it might be. And that to me is like such a perfect metaphor for what's uh, often lacking in the conversations about writing well. Uh-huh. You know, in, in MFA classes um, and in writing guides and stuff, we don't talk enough about power and power analysis and, and listening. To me, those are the two like writing that we just let slide so often because they're very uncomfortable conversations for people means we have to deal with privilege and all these things that you know people write over letters talk about and and they're so fundamental you can't be a writer of any worth if you're not thinking deeply about power it doesn't matter if you're writing fantasy or essays or what if you're not thinking about power you're not going to write a good story why because conflict is at the heart of all the stories we're telling and you have to have a power analysis to understand conflict um, and to me, that's that's being a medic is, is understanding what are the powers at play within the human body and what are the powers at play within the bureaucracies that we're man- managing and dealing with and, and, and how are we going to get through them and survive them for ourselves at the end of the day and get our patients to safety at the end of the day. If 
you're not analyzing that stuff, you're failing. And the same is true if you're doing even more so if you're doing coordination and you're dealing with different governments and bureaucracies and all these things. That's, that's how you also become a writer. And for me too, I mean, on my side, like the international side, for me, fundamentally, you know, I, I came to this sort of humanitarian principle because we call it humanitarianism, but we it's become almost an idiom that we don't think about what that word means. Mm. But for me, there's this fundamental thing that it's looking at everyone around us as human, whether they're a combatant, whether they're non-combatant, whether they're rich or poor, you know, they were affected by this disaster and we need to look at them as human and um, and and treat them that way. And and I think that is also, you know, the fundamental pr principle I see in my writing, because you need to have human characters and all of your characters should be human. Because when you start writing cliches, when you start, when you see the person with chest pains and assume it's one thing, right. you know, when you, you have to write a security guard and you assume it's going to be a man who looks a certain way, mm -hmm. uh, then you're falling down on the job. Which is bad writing. That's what I'm saying, yeah. people that you're listening to COVID Calls and this uh, really fascinating conversation we're having with Daniel Jose Older and Malka Older about fiction and creativity in COVID-19. I want to make that turn now to the pandemic. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with both of you was um, really actually to, to see if you could unpack for us a little bit how readers, potentially writers, um, can be in this time, how they can use reading or writing as a way to cope or make sense of what we're all going through. And I think this, what you were just talking about in that last round there to me, amazing. You're talking about things that we're often looking to newspapers to try to sort out mm. power. Who's calling the shots right now and who's falling down on the job? Who's right. being murdered and who's doing the murdering and who's right. going to decide what happened? And then listening, Daniel, you said, and that's such to me an important you know, and the sort of attentiveness to the human experience, which, you know, even reading these obituaries, which I've been doing on COVID calls, every time I do that, I'm somehow, and this is just me, but somehow reconnecting to something that even in the course of a single day can become abstract. Again, mm -hmm. I've been fortunate enough to not be ill and not be touched by it in my family. But that reconnection is always crucial, it seems like. So I guess I want to turn to you, Malka. Let me ask you first about that, mm -hmm. just in the – not asking for some grand theory, but just how you even come into this space of, like, thinking about the pandemic through creativity. Um, so I, I think this is – for me, this is really an answer where I think creativity is, is, is so important for dealing with – well, I think it's just important in general, but especially for dealing with stuff like this. But I also think it's very, very much a your mileage may vary situation, which is why I really wanted to bring in Daniel or someone else so that it wasn't just me. Because honestly, I think people use it in very, very different ways. And that's part of why we have the wonderful panoply of literature that, that we do have. Um, you know, like I, in terms of my reading, <laughs> I've been super just like, um, I, I want to say cozy, but they're not cozy in the sense of like cozy mysteries because the cozy books I've been going through, one of them is the Martha Wells Murderbot series, which is okay. not cozy, but it's so cozy. Yeah. Um, and I, so I've just, you know, I've been reading books that I know <laughs> are not going to rip my heart out right. um, and authors that I trust and uh, things that I know will give me a good voice and a good story and that will keep me going. Um, but that's me. And I know other people who need to read things at times like this that will rip their heart out because it's different getting it ripped out through fiction mm -hmm. than it is in real life. And that can be uh, it can be a cathartic thing. It can be a sort of displacement thing. Um, so I really want to say, you know, however it works for you is great for me. Um, you know, the reading is is partly escapism. I think there's also a degree to which, you know, some of it also provides um, some analysis, some, you know, some distance, some sense of uh, that people deal with things, some hope in that sense. Um, you know, the reminder that 
this moment in time is not the only moment and that people, generations of humans have gone through really terrible things um, in the past in many different places. Uh, and, and this is not the only terrible thing. And that's, I think, a really important thing to remember. Um, so that's that's the reading side. And um, I, I'll let Daniel go on that too, and then we'll talk about the, the writing side. Mm. Yeah, for reading, uh, there's I, I'm pretty similar to you, Malka. Like I, I, I think the first thing I did was uh, pick up some of the Shambhala and different Buddhist texts that I had read uh, at different moments from my, of my own personal struggles. And, and found a lot of um, solace in, and, and, and in a very practical way, just like sit in meditation, um, returning to that, because I just kind of go in and out of it very often. But, um, and just very practically understanding sort of presentness, you know, and, and, and presentness through bad times. Um, Pema Children has this book, uh, When Things Fall Apart, that is such a crucial and excellent read. Um, so it was that, I was juggling that, and then like, my comfort reads are like Dr. Afra, Star Wars, <laughs> the comic book series. Um, and stuff that I just know is like really good, like really just feeds me because uh, I don't really reread a lot of stuff, um, but that's just a series that I love so much. So I picked that up. Um, uh, recently I read um, Andrea Harrison's amazing upcoming book, Master of Poisons, which is the heavier, heavier end of things that I've read because it does deal with a lot of disasters and people trying to um, just fight off great horrible things but it, it does it in, in such a beautiful and poetic way with so much hope infused in it that it, it really worked um but then what i said was the, the other thing i've been doing is gaming which i haven't done since i was like 10 we used to together mm-hmm. uh, Zelda <laughs> first and so yeah i've been playing breath of the, breath of the wild which is an incredible game it's so and i do think there's a piece of it that is just like the fa- it's very immersive you know because you mm-hmm. make for the hero, you are the hero, so you're living it and embodying it. And, you know, just particularly with a game like that, that's open world where you're just like, where do I want to wander around today? And, you, you know, you get to go play in this other world. And it's just so great. So, yeah, I, I've been having a good time with that. <laughs> Definitely. But let's talk a little bit then on the on the writing side. I just wanted one thing I wanted to throw in there. Uh, thanks for listing the things you're reading. That's tremendous. And um, I reread Camus, The Plague, and I and I read for the first time. Yeah, right. um, I, know. I know. I know. Whatever. I'm gonna confess. I, you confess. I'm gonna confess. But um, reading the uh, Journal of the Plague Year, Daniel Defoe's Journal of Plague Year, which anybody can find online for free, about the 1666 London. Right. Um, Plague, to me, it was, and Malka, it really resonates with something you said. I've been asked, I was asked by students yesterday, um, what can we learn from history about COVID-19? And my answer, and I always struggle with this, "Ah, I want to be able to give you like the one, two, three quick things. But you know what? I've learned more from literature and reading plague literature about humanity in this time. And particularly this issue that's given me a lot of concern is how people are coping with distance and suffering and distance and death at a distance. And it came up even in an obituary that I read. And this is not the first time we've dealt with this. We've had to deal with it in different times and places in different ways. And so that was another way I found literature as a reader really sustaining and helping me make some sense of something that I wasn't, I couldn't even put it in the form of a thought before I read it um, in Defoe. So, so that's reading. Let's talk about writing. And then you're both going to read something for us too, I think as well. We have time. Time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, um, Malka, go ahead. Yeah, the writing. I mean, I told you um, last time I was here that I I really dived into some of my, my work in progress and was feeling um, pretty productive because it was an escape for me, but it's an escape in a different way from the reading because I can't, you know, you can't, you can't go cozy when you're, you're writing. I mean, you can, if that's the book you're writing, but um I, you know, I, the, the thing that works for me, the thing that has been really helpful for me with the creativity is that you have to, you do have to immerse yourself. And, and that comes back to what I was saying before about how the characters have to be human. Um, you know, you have to get yourself into that place where you can say, if these are real people, what are they doing next? You know, and this situation, I, the work I had in progress, what I was working on when this all happened was actually a book very much about disasters. So that's fun. Um, but it's, 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. And I need to figure out that world as I go. And I need to figure out the characters as I go and their interactions. Mm. And so, you know, when I lie down in bed and my brain wants to freak out, I have a place I can go, which is to say, what happens next to this person? What does this person do next? What can, what is the weird thing that's going to come up in the setting? Or what is the thing that these people are going to come together to do? And how does that take them to the next step? And uh, that's just been, for me, a really powerful way of, you know, I think it's, it's, it's getting my brain to work on sometimes on some of these related fears and anxieties and issues and, and grief. Um, and sometimes not, you know, sometimes it's just telling a story, a part of the story that's not so tied into it, um, which is also fine. But and sometimes it's working it out in a, in a, in a weird parallel way. Um, but for me, that's been that's been really, uh, really useful. Um, and yeah, I just I whatever is the part of the story that my brain feels like digging into, that's the part of the story I'm going to think about and then eventually write on wherever it comes in, in the actual eventual chronology of this weird story that mm-hmm. who knows. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been really helpful for me. I always laugh because those of us who write dark horror adjacent fiction mm-hmm. or just like, you know, twisted shit. Um, you know, it's like, that, like for any I knew you couldn't do it, Daniel. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> for any career, you know, that's exactly what you said. Like where we go to our head when we're trying not to, Think about how horrible things are as our creative project, but when we write all this stuff, that's you know, it's like go to your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> that's the happy place. Yeah. But um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The the story that's up on tour.com, Malka. I wanted to ask you just a little bit about that because people can't grab that. It's it's um it's from your 2019 book and other disasters, and it's is is it called the Divided? Is that the title of it? Yeah. You know it, Daniel. That's the one I read um, that time. Could you? Oh yeah, I love that story. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and I wonder. I think people will go find it and and read it. Um, could you? But can I ask you just to say a little bit, even just about about that? It sort of take us a little bit into how your your mind works as a writer. Yeah, um, details I, you chose in there are amazing. I mean, and I'm also yeah. just thinking, you know, that book and other disasters that came out in 2019. You didn't have a pandemic in mind. That, I mean, that book will be seen as a as a pandemic book, probably. I mean, that's the disaster that's on everybody's mind. But you had other disasters in mind, and I did. I mean, I, I mostly worked, yeah, and and not just natural ones. Um, I'll, I will just as an aside, as a shout out, if you want a book about this moment that came out in t- 2019, read Sarah Pinsker's A Song for a New Day, because it is an amazing, hopeful, really interesting, and um, you know, rich book um, that that just has a lot to say about the present moment. It's it includes a pandemic. It's not only about the pandemic, but but the result is is very much about um, distance and community. Putting that shout out there, um, and also thank you to everyone who's saying hello to us in the comments. It's nice to see all your faces and comments. Um, but uh, your question. So this story is called the Divided. Um, it's actually, I was asked to write it for a horror anthology about the moment after um, the 2016 elections. And I, I don't really write horror that much. Um, some people think my novel is dystopian and horrific. I, I think it's kind of hopeful, probably because I'm more cynical than most people, <laughs> I guess. Um, but that, you know, that one, I, I started out thinking, how can I write horror in a speculative way when there's so much real life horror in the world right now, how do I make, you know, how do I write something that's, that's both about what's going on, but, but that's, you know, I could, I could just write that the stories in the newspaper. It's, it's hard. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I just, you know, I thought about it and that was a story that really, it, it basically wrote itself. I, I just, was lying there at night thinking, you know, and as soon as I had the the thought of how it would look, I just got up and wrote the story. Um, and I did a little bit of work on it later uh, to make it stronger. But the basic story was was there right away, I think, because it was really one of those moments when it was a channeling of that that horror, that real life horror and that emotion um, 
and the grief into, you know, a way to, to, I think what's the power of speculative fiction, particularly sometimes other kinds of fiction can do this as well, but especially speculative fiction, the power of it is a trick mirror. You know, it's something that you look at and you have reactions to what you're seeing before you figure out that it is a reflection of yourself and of Mm. your society and of the time you live in. Our books about the future are not about the future. They're about the present, but it's a way of getting people to think about the present differently. Similarly, alternate history books or um, fantasy books, they're all, you know, just just tricks for us to get. And and the books that I, uh, you know, that I love the most are the ones that I I find, you know, 80% of the way through or something, feel that moment of this is what they're trying to say and this is how it relates to my life now. Even though I've been enjoying this as, you know, an adventure in a dragon world up till this point. Um, So, you know, for me, that's, that was that was the feeling with that that particular story. And thank you. I do hope people will read that. I hope they will. And there's also a really cool project um, that was done with it um, by this group called the Disquiet Hundo um, that does uh, some experimental music. And they they took a, a recording of my voice reading the story, and then asked all the musicians all over the world to make a soundtrack using only my voice as the instrument so you can look yeah i know it's so cool um so you can look that up on the disquiet it's quinto with a j um and an o for some reason at the end and and if you want to listen to the story with a soundtrack um it's up there Malko, you have set the bar possibly high for disaster researchers Uh, (laughs) this is like and it's not fair but i really love what you're describing it's tremendous and um daniel i wonder if you might share something with us about about something you've written lately or or one of your works give us a little bit of behind the scenes just like malka did what was going through your mind what what were you working Um, out well one thing i'll say in terms of process um it there's a lot that I do now that I've always done, but now it takes on a, a deeper um, resonance and necessity because of what's going on. Um, and the main thing is to come back to this idea of listening, you know, um, I, I just find it so important. I'm a big advocate of, of some form of journaling as, as, as a partner to writing for other people. I think, um, you know, I don't think it has to be in like a formal book with a lock and a key or, you know, anywhere else except that we have to get things off our chest and to move towards the writing space with intentionality. Um, otherwise we can kind of like trip over our own feet trying to get there in a hurry. And, and that's one of the things I, I talk and write about a lot is, is the idea that writing really begins with forgiveness and um, forgiving of ourselves first and foremost, um, because we're, it's so easy to take on all these voices that say to us, you know, like you should have been writing more, um, you're not a real writer unless you publish or unless you write every day or any kind of assorted bullshit rules that people make up to give you a particular title. Right, right, right. Um, but you're a writer if you write. If you write, you're a writer. You know, like there's no like you don't clock in and then get to call yourself a writer because you did it a certain number of times. Like that's not how it works. Um, and, and I think it's important to say that loud and to know that, you know, I there are months and months when I don't write and, and I'm, I consider myself prolific and I don't set out to be prolific. I just love writing and I write in part, I write so much because I take breaks and that's a very healing part of being a working writer that they act like you're not supposed to do, which is really how people burn out, which is really how people stop being writers because they're burnt out because they were trying to write every single day. Um, And I think that's very dangerous. Some people it works for, but the idea that it's this like headline banner that is how you get to call yourself a writer is bullshit. So that, and then I just really think it's important to put your thoughts on, on, on the page. Um, again, so you're not just trying to jump onto the page immediately and start writing, you know, just sit with yourself, with your thoughts. Sometimes I'll play a whole song all the way through and make myself not write, just so I can settle in um, and be, be, be still and be present with my coffee before I really jump in. Um, so all those things I think are really important. The project I'm, I just finished working on uh, is something that's a, a co-written project which I've really been enjoying um, with my good friend Baba Malik Duncan, um, who's a priest in my community in uh, Santero um, of Alegba. And we've been working on this graphic novel together that comes out from Abrams uh, in, in 2022. 
And it's about death coming back to the world every thousand years to spend 24 hours with its child. And this year, the child was kidnapped. So when it shows up at the door to the house where the child is supposed to be, the child is gone. And this kind of shadowy organization of different religious elders has to jump into action to find the kid. Um, so it's very pressing because, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the assumption is kind of like if, they, if death doesn't get to spend the day with its kid, everyone's going to die. <laughs> no one dies on death's day. For the next day, everyone's going to die. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we, you know, the concept originally came from Malik. And then we developed it together into this re really wild noir story. And it, it, he, I know he wasn't thinking about this year in particular when he wrote it, but that, here we are writing it. <laughs> is that out now? Can we read that now? No, it comes out in 2022. I'm afraid to say it has to be right now. What's really oh, cool? Is, I know. I'm sorry. I know. No. <laughs> No, I just finished writing it. With start you. tweeting. Start tweeting it out now. Like, <laughs> we need to read it now. I shouldn't even. That's really amazing. Pre-order link yet? It's terrible. Amazing premise. But um, it's really amazing, and it's been so much fun to develop. And the really cool thing is, on top of it being a collaboration between us, which has been really fun, now it comes the really great part where the illustrator uh, Chuck Collins comes in and starts drawing it. So we're all in a, a, a WhatsApp group together. And bouncing, you know, pictures back and forth, and it's just so much fun, and and I've been enjoying that so much. And then the and then the other collaborative thing I'm involved in is the Star Wars Initiative, which is also just really fun. So every week gets to jump on a on a, a Zoom call, um, which I genuinely dread, but this one's a lot of fun, and <laughs> really fun um, because it's just like Star Wars nerds talking about Star Wars, and we get to create this whole new era in Star Wars history and just have a great time. So. Um, the, the collaborative aspect of, of creativity has really been um, happening for me right now in a way that's very fun. And, and I think we need to tear down this myth of the writer as like this, just like sad, <laughs> drunk, drunk, you know, old like, man. right? Old white man in a cabin, like in, in a country that's not his own because it's cheaper for him to live there. All this oh no, and not typing. His wife is typing. Sorry. Ah! I have a poem with Hemingway. That's what really happens. Yeah. I, Big Hemingway fan, are you? <laughs> um, I, I want to just agree <laughs> with Daniel on a couple of things here. Taking time off. Um, I take 24 hours off every week that I don't let myself write. Hmm. And again, your mileage may vary. Like, do your thing. But especially right. at a time when all the schedules have fallen apart, um, I find that really useful. Um, I started doing it when I was a PhD student and there were no schedules. Um, and it's it's really helpful. Also, any kind of writing that works for you, like I think what Daniel brought up with the, the Star Wars is, is a nice segue to say also, you know, if you don't have the headspace to do an entire world build, write fan fiction. No, you know, go, go to a place that you love in your yeah. head and write about those characters. And that's, you know, if that's what works for you, that's fantastic, and and also can can you know. So some of the biggest franchises in the world started yes, as fan fiction. Started as fan fiction. I mean that that can that can take you to the other place, but it is also good enough as in its own. Like it's it's a great thing to do. Um, I I mean I kind of I love the world building part, and I love doing my own stuff. But I wrote a um, Orphan Black sequel with Serial Box. Um, last year, and it was so much fun. And that's that's the other thing that what Danny was talking about, the collaborative. I, I love working on my own sometimes. I love being on my own head and building the whole thing. I also have really loved the experience of working collaboratively with other writers and throwing ideas around. So, you know, there's so many ways that you can use creativity in your life to, to get that kick, to get engaged, to get your brain working on different tracks than the track of just watching the news and freaking out about it every night. Right. Um, so, you know, experiment and, and find what, what works for you. So uh, we're almost up on time, but I want to underline a couple of things that uh, some of the people writing in, Labyrinth Rat and Jorge Benavides. Uh, Labyrinth Rat is, is also out. a writer who's a great writer, also a Cuban writer like us. Hey. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, they're, they're pointing out... Um, the rapport between the two of you, which is fun to watch, and um, and also I think this sort of like the joy of the, that's still possible, even though we're talking about death a lot right now. 
Um, but even just listening to you both talk about your background and how you come into writing and how you think about, you know, and your your description there, you know, Malka lying there at night thinking, you know, what's going to happen next to these characters and and giving ourselves the freedom to imagine those possibilities in those in those worlds. It just seems so crucial right now as a form of coping. And, and um, I don't know, I mean, it's maybe sort of final words here as we as we close out. Um, is that is that particularly true, do you think, in times of trauma and distress and pandemic, this massive global shared experience we're having now? I mean, should people be taking up a creative practice, even if they haven't done it before? I mean, it seems like it would be an essential thing almost to prescribe to people in this moment. Take up painting or, or knitting or writing or whatever it takes to get your head into some other space out of this rumination zone that we find ourselves in so often. I was thinking about Walter Mosley saying um, that he feels like everybody should write a book, but not everybody should publish that book. Which <laughs> <laughs> is not real. Because you, you, you learn, someone else once said, I cannot for the life of me remember who, but writing the book is, the, is basically the process by which you become the writer you need to be to finish the book. Mm. And that is a word. That's so true. Like it, You really do have to step up to finish that book in a different level, you have to learn, you know, along with, it's the story of the character, but it's the story of the writer too, you know, stepping up to become the writer that, that we need to be. And, and that's that, that helps whether you're a professional writer or not, like it, that's an amazing thing to go through in, in the best possible way. It's an amazing journey to go on. So yeah, I mean, this is the year to write your book, right? But no, I don't have that. Um, it can be so many different things, but I would say- It can be so many different things. And, and I, I did just feel like, um, you know, when you, sorry, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I, you. Um, I, I kept thinking at the beginning of this, how, you know, when you read books from, um, England, like just after the great war and they say about people, he had a good war or he had a bad war mm. and there's so much variety in it. And I think that that's so much the case now. Mm. Um, and people are having very different experiences. So listen, if you are totally swamped, do not feel like you have to take a creative practice right now. Um, if it works for you, <laughs> if you are not swamped and your brain is running around in circles, you know, it's a great thing to try and be forgiving of yourself, you know, do things that are fun for you. Sometimes when I haven't recently, but sometimes when I have time, I paint because I have you know, the writing, it's my job and I want to make it good. I, I'm trying to, I've learned how to be forgiving myself in the writing too. So I, it doesn't bother me too much, but sometimes it's nice to go do something that's totally different that I have zero ego share in. And right. I can just like, right. and it focuses my mind because I want to make the line go that way. I have no idea how to do it. Right. So, you know, there's that kind of concentration. And then there's the, I'm writing a novel and it could take me three months, but that's going to be a really fun, immersive journey for me. Whatever works with your situation, um, and there are, and and also there are lots of things out there that if this is something you're interested in doing that can help you. I'm fond of NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, and they've been putting out a lot of stuff for people who are in quarantine um, yes. to give them roots to writing. There are lots of other ones as well if that one doesn't work for you. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 a really useful approach. That's great. I would say too, just like people are doing it. I think people are taking this. My father-in-law, who I didn't realize was a songwriter, and I just found out in the last couple of days, has written three songs. Oh, cool. I know people have taken up poetry in this time. I mean, I do think it is. It, it's as you said, Maka. If you're swamped, don't feel the additional obligation to take up creative practice right now. But I do right. feel like people are reacting. I feel like there is that sense of finding that creativity through words. Um, Daniel, I'm going to give you the last word, and we're going to wrap up. Uh, it's a time when the world itself is shedding its skin, and and it's painful, and and you know it hurts, and you know, there's a lot of disaster around that. It's also an amazing time. There's change; we can feel it. There's monuments falling that have been up for our entire lifetimes that many of us never dreamed we would see fall. And I think the more that we can lean into that positive change that is happening in the world and in ourselves, uh, the better off we are. You know, we are all street shifters mm -hmm. and we're seeing the world shift its shape very dramatically. And it's um, as scary as it is, it does ultimately mean a better future for our kids. And, um, you know, if, if we take that on to ourselves, each of us, that's how the world changes. 
And we need to tell those stories. Right. Exactly. You've been listening to COVID Calls. I want to remind you, COVID Calls is on every Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 situation in Sweden with the historian Johan Gardebo. I cannot wait to talk with Johan about that. And I want to thank my guests. What a great hour. Malka Older and Daniel Jose Older. Wonderful to be with you. Thanks a million for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for doing this. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.